Welcome to episode 63 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week, my guest Angela served in the Air Force, and one of the interesting things that we talked about was that she married a Marine. So we talked a lot about what it was like to be a dual military member married to someone who was not in the same service, the challenges that they faced getting stationed together, and how the strain of being in two different services had a toll on their marriage. So I think this story is really interesting because a lot of people don't think about sometimes dual service means dual branches and they're not always the same. And so it adds another aspect of military life that people might not think about. So I hope you're excited to listen to this episode. You're listening to the Women of the Military podcast, where we share the stories of female service members and how the military touched their lives. I'm your host, military veteran, military spouse, and mom, Amanda Huffman. My goal is to find the heart of the story and uncover issues women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Angela served in the Air Force from 1998 to 2014. She worked in satellite communications for most of her career. After retiring from active duty, she became an attorney in Florida. Welcome, Angela. I'm excited to hear your story. Thank you so much for having me. Let's dive in with why did you decide to join the military? Oh, gosh. Uh, it seems like it was like a lifetime ago when that happened. So it feels a lot of times it feels like talking about somebody else. And I don't know if other people feel that way, but military service seems so long ago. I was 19 and I realized pretty quickly after graduating high school at 17 that, you know, there in my small town, there just weren't a lot of options for careers. And uh, one day I was at the mall as most kids my age did about that time of year and ran into a recruiter and started talking. And then, you know, after a few starts and stops, finally just took the plunge and said, please get me out of here before I change my mind. And the rest was history. So did you pick the Air Force or was that just the recruiting office that you happened to go into? Well, for me, I um, initially had considered going into the Marine Corps. It may sound shallow, but I thought their uniforms looked really nice. Uh, especially on the guys. <laughs> but um, I, uh, I had initially considered the Marine Corps and um, I did speak with them at, uh, at length and I spoke with the Army briefly and then walked past the Air Force recruiter one day and struck up a conversation. After hearing from him, I, I thought that may be where I needed to go. And it just sounded like a, a better option for where I was and what I wanted to do after the military. So Air Force wasn't my um, my initial, this is what I want to do. This is where I'm going to be. But I think once I made the decision to go, it was really what was best for me. That's good that you try the different ones and got a little bit of information. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe one of my Marine guests, she said, you should go Air Force was her advice <laughs> to women. <laughs> How did your career start? You went off to boot camp. Was it still, it was at Lackland Air Force Base? Or? Yeah, that's right. I started out, I showed up at Lackland Air Force Base and, and me and uh, probably about 45 of my closest female friends all <laughs> spent the next six and a half weeks together. And we had male, all male TIs, uh, training instructors. And um, so they were usually not allowed up into the barracks after a certain time in the evening. So 
um, that allowed for a lot of uh, bonding time with the girls. And from there, I went to, well, actually went across the street to Medina training base across the way there and went into electronic principles and then off to Fort Gordon, which is an army post in Augusta, Georgia, where I spent several months there learning about wideband and satellite communications and uh, then went on to my first duty station in the panhandle of Florida. So that was my first real taste of Florida. <laughs> in the panhandle, were you at Tyndall Air Force Base? Eglin. Eglin. I had a 50-50 yeah. shot. <laughs> so there are a lot of my uh, a lot of my classmates. I think we had one that had orders to Korea, and one had orders to Shaw in South Carolina, and I believe one went to Minot. And then you know, it, I think out of all of them, I think I won out <laughs> for sure. <laughs> So what do you do in like satellite communications? What part of your job can you talk about that you could tell us about? Well, the, the biggest thing that we did from, from there was when, when I first reported to Eglin, I was part of a wide man or wide band shop in the, it was wide band and SATCOM together, but they had uh, wide band crews and SATCOM crews. And the wide band crew basically did point to point communications. So it was microwave. You think about microwave towers that are only, you know, 50, say 50 feet high and they just transmit end to end. And you you have um, usually telephones, just real primitive communications from, from there, uh, at least when I did that. Then I transferred over to the SATCOM crew where we did more satellite-based stuff. So it was taking all of the phone lines and internet and things like that, trunking it together and then shooting it up into space. And then the distant end would you know, bring it down through amplifiers and whatnot and then take it back out to the end user. That's kind of the, it's the layman's version of what it was. It's a whole lot more complicated with, you know, all the, the different terms and terminology that they use for that. But that was basically what it was. So in 1998 and like the early stages of like all that sort of technology, I mean, it, space stuff had been around for a while, but it started to change a lot in like the late 90s, early 2000s. So like, did you see any big changes over your career on how much the satellites took over or were they always a big part to play in the communications piece? I think as the world changed and we became more involved in a, a lot of other areas of the world. I think satellite took a, a more of a front seat where before point-to-point -point and microwave communications were more the, the standard. I remember, I can remember going from a certain cable type with our microwave systems to fiber. So I got to see a lot of the, the fiber stuff coming on board a lot more. And that was a pretty niche area at the time. So when you got to learn a lot about that, it was kind of like you had a secret that a lot of people didn't have because the older, you know, I say older, but the more seasoned technicians had dealt more with the, the ground pounding kind of communications, the, you know, just your basic telephones and things like that. Then we started dealing more with uh, fiber communications, long haul and, and things like that. So I, I think BNN during that time was really fascinating and seeing how things were changing and things were growing. But then also with the way the Air Force was at that time, we were on the heels of 9-11 and there was a whole lot of joining fields, paring down forces and things that made keeping up with all the terminology, the technology, and being able to keep our communications footprints uh, small and compact in the theater, I think it made it really challenging. But it also made us a really self-reliant when it came to dealing with, you know, kind of the fly by the seat of your pants ordeals that we were handling. Yeah, that sounds like it would be really interesting to know all the technical details. <laughs> How long were you in Florida? So the first time when I was in the Panhandle, I was up there for just a couple of years. Then right at 9-11, I PCS or changed stations and went to Korea. 
So while everyone else was here stateside reeling from the attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon and the plane that went down in Pennsylvania, Flight 93, I was uh, learning a new language in Korea and had no idea what was going on back here. And at that point, a lot of the comm systems were down. So it was kind of hard to get information back to the States and more to that fact, my, my parents didn't know for the first couple of days if I'd even arrived in Korea safely. So they weren't, they were grounded planes left and right. So nobody really knew who was where and what was happening. And it, was, it, was, it made for a crazy time, which I'm sure you, uh, you can attest to that as well. So you were in the middle of moving to Korea right around when September 11th happened. And so that's one of the things that happened that I think people don't really realize. Like if you were moving or traveling during that time, like all those planes were grounded and technology was wasn't as good as it is today. And I don't even know if it was as good as it is today, if there would still be ways that you couldn't really get a hold of people. That's an interesting situation. So your parents were probably worried about you. A little bit, a little bit, I think. And, you know, if that one of the first things they did, of course, was they shut down a lot of the bases because they were trying to figure out you know, kind of what was going on, what's the response, how do we handle this, which I think was uh, the, the fast acting, you know, from a military perspective in protecting all of the, the infrastructure that we had. I think it was it was good on them for that. Um, but at the same time, for someone who had just arrived in, in Korea and they shut down the base. And so more to that fact, my supervisor lived in off base housing. Well, it was it was base housing, but it was located off post. He couldn't get on base to let people know, hey, she's here. And I just happened to run into one of our admin girls. She had stopped back by the dorms to pick up some stuff to take back to the squadron. And I come, you know, walking out of my room. I'm like, uh, hi. And she's like, oh, you're our new person. Come with me. And I'm like, oh, okay. You know, what's going on? Is this a joke? And so you know, she's like, yeah, no, not a joke. I was like, that was mean. <laughs> I thought everybody had just left me and it was awful. But I survived. Everybody survived. So we were, we were good. But it took a few days before everything started making sense. You were in Korea for a year? Yes. Or? I spent a glorious year in, in South Korea. You know, it, I really enjoyed the the experience there a lot. You know, there, it gets a lot of mixed reviews. Some folks are like, oh, you know, I don't want to go to Korea. And then a lot of people you know, think, oh, yeah, shopping, which the shopping is pretty good in Korea. I'm not going to lie. But yeah, I had a, a full year there and then um, had a follow on to North Carolina and came back stateside, actually leaving the airport right at the one year anniversary and got to hear on the radio the moment of silence and driving under the overpasses, seeing the flags draped down on the overpasses and all that stuff. I think that's when it really hit me that something happened back home that, you know, was really not just something you see on TV. Yeah, that makes sense after being away from here and then coming home and the reality of it and just the gravity of it all. So you went to North Carolina and did you continue to do satellite communication stuff there? Yes, I did. And let's see, I was trying to remember. I mean, we had several deployments and stuff while we were there. And I think uh, one of those included going to Iraq. Um, That wasn't my first deployment, but it was the first one where I think we were being shot at on a regular basis. So that that made it that added a whole degree of difficulty to the whole deployment aspect of it, because before deployments had just been, oh, yeah, we're going to deploy here. We're just going to make sure the comm stays up and, you know, it'll be fine and you know everything's good and nobody's getting hurt unless it's heat exhaustion. But then you go into an environment like that and you realize that, you know, some some of it is is very scary. It can be uh, quite quite interesting to deal with. So you deployed a few times, and then when you went to Iraq was when the first time you really saw combat on like close level, that, and that changed 
you still had your job to keep the communications up, but then you also had the attacks that made the whole deployment more difficult. Mm -hmm. What was the hardest part of being deployed to Iraq? I think at that point, I mean, it was just the uncertainty. And I, I remember, you know, there there were a lot of comments made about, you know, your your time there is pretty much a crapshoot. You know, you don't know when your number is going to come up and, and all that. So it was, I think, very... It was very concerning, you know, because there's just a lot of uncertainty and you didn't really know because of the, the way the base was laid out, the situation, everything, the volatility in the region and everything. Even though we didn't have many opportunities to go off post and most of us had no opportunity to go off post, I think it was just um, the gravity of the situation, you know, kind of made it very, very sobering. And, and that's not a, a government order one <laughs> or general order one joke. It really is kind of you're kind of like, oh, this is this is for real. And I think the other part of that. At the time when I was deployed to Iraq, my husband at the time was also deployed to Iraq, but he was deployed to another area within Iraq. He was actually in the Marine Corps. And so when we were both stationed there, to our, or I'm sorry, deployed there, we had the challenges with being at different posts or bases, along with the challenges of you know being able to communicate back and forth. Letters don't travel any faster, even though you're in the same country. So it's, um, you know, it, it made for... I mean, it helped kind of pass the time because if he had just been deployed and I had been back stateside, I think it would have been a, a lot more stressful situation. I think being there kind of gave my mind something to do. But at the same time, you know, you, you don't know. And where we were, we were in an area that saw a lot of the injured folks heading back um, stateside. So we were one of the past through stations there. And um, I did volunteer at the hospital quite a bit just to keep busy. But, you know, you, you never knew. It was always in the back of my mind. Am I going to walk in one day thinking I'm going to volunteer? And then there's my husband. You know, so it was a little concerning then. But, you know, we, we made it through that deployment. And I think, you know, because we're Air Force, we had a, a shorter deployment cycle. So I came home first and then he came home and, you know, everything was everything was fine after that. I mean, as, as well as it could be considering. So he was not in the same brain. My first husband wasn't. No, my current husband, it, he was Air Force. We both retired at the same time. And then my, my ex-husband retired. I want to say it's been maybe a Maybe a year ago. I think I think it's been a year since he since he retired. So yeah, three retirees all in one little group. So <laughs> it's like dad old. <laughs> How did it all work with him being in the Marine Corps and you being in the Air Force? Were you able to get stationed like close to each other or at the same base or how did that work? Well it didn't work, hence why he's my ex. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> No, let's see. So when we, we got married, my follow-on, so we got married right before I went to Korea. And then my follow-on was to North Carolina. So we were able to be stationed somewhat close to each other. Then he moved on to the D.C. area. And then I followed a few months later. You know, and, and for, for dual service and the rank situation, one of the things about being enlisted is that the higher you go in rank, the smaller the opportunities are to move at will. And when you've got two people that are both moving up in rank pretty consistently, it can make it even more challenging to find jobs, especially considering his job. He was in a um, he was in a pretty sensitive job that only had a few bases that they could actually go to and even fewer that were near Air Force bases. It took a, a lot of shuffling to try to keep us together. But ultimately, I, I think 
being dual service that way, I think they, they overall did a really good job at being able to keep us as together as possible, as quickly as possible. So it wasn't always, you know, we were moving at the same time. You know, like I said, the, the last base that we transferred to, I followed on about, I want to say it was maybe six months later. But I mean, a six month lag is really not that bad in the grand scheme of things, especially when as technology got better, you know, we were able to talk, we were able to drive back and forth. So it wasn't, it wasn't awful. I mean, it wasn't ideal, but it wasn't awful. And then my current husband being both Air Force, it was a little easier. We were in different career fields. So at least they weren't trying to figure out how to keep us in different work centers or anything like that. So that wasn't so bad. But even with that, as we increased in rank, we were both concerned that the chances for us being stationed together long term would be you know, fewer and far between, especially since by the time we retired, I'd already completed a short tour, which was in Korea. I'd already completed a special duty assignment. And I don't think he had, memory serves me correct me, I think he only had a long tour and there were no short tours. There were no special duty assignments. So I was concerned that he might get involuntarily selected for something like that and end up being somewhere like like, you know, that wasn't wasn't exactly conducive to dual military. <laughs> and now a word from our sponsor. Is your family going to be okay financially if you die? Hey there, I'm Melissa Skirt, Coast Guard spouse and experienced insurance agent. As the owner of Insure the Heroes Incorporated, an independent term life insurance brokerage, I help military families past and present, as well as the general public, put together life insurance plans that fit their needs and budget. Military spouses provide financial value to their families, even if they're not working. I encourage them to consider what their service member would do if they died. Securing the right amount of life insurance is how you can protect your home front should you pass away prematurely. The SGL is rarely enough to cover your family's long-term financial needs. Also, when you transition out of the military into the civilian world, life insurance shopping will be on your to-do list. Ideally, you want to lock in coverage well beforehand. Remember, life insurance isn't for you. It's for the ones you leave behind. So head on over to my website at insuretheheroes.com for a no-obligation quote or to book a complimentary call. If you prefer, you can dial me directly at 844-514-LIFE. Hi friends, Women of the Military is a compilation of 28 stories of women who have served or are currently serving in the military. Through the stories of these women, you will learn so much about not only the military, but what women have done and how much has changed for women throughout the years. And this book is an especially great gift for women veterans that you know or women who are looking to join the military. But even if you don't know anyone who fits those categories, I think everyone will enjoy learning more about military women through purchasing Women of the Military, available on Amazon. Let's get back to the show. I think you hit a lot of the challenges, especially like my husband and I faced when we were both in. We never PCS at the same time. And like we were able to get stationed together. But when you were talking about how like there were select bases, there's only a few bases that my husband can go to and my career field couldn't go to most of them. So it makes it really challenging to figure out how to get stationed together. And it's a lot of work on the members part to do all that. It's not just like, oh, you write it on a piece of paper. I'm married to this person and then they make it happen. They like work with you, but you have to do a lot of the work too. And I, I think that goes back to one of the things an old supervisor told me toward the beginning of my career. He said, you know, no one's going to care for your career as much as you do. And so if you want something to happen or you want a certain outcome, you're going to have to make it happen. And I think that that was one of the things that just kind of stuck in the back of my mind. And, you know, while it wasn't always ideal, you know, it's kind of like if you if you 
force it or you become the squeaky wheel, eventually things will work out or you'll find a way to work around it so that you can at least make it livable. Did you have any challenges besides dual military while you were serving in the military? There were a lot of challenges, you know, and it's kind of, I think when you step back and you look at it, I don't know that many of them are unique to military life. I think it's stuff that people in the civilian sector experience as well. You know, I think the military does a pretty decent job at making sure that, you know, for the most part, there's professionalism and courtesy that, you know, that goes all the way through. Um, I did see a lot of things in the military that I, I wished I hadn't been a part of or wished that I'd been better prepared to handle. But I, I think overall, you know, the, the military tries. I, th- I think they, they, they try. It's just, a lot of times their kind of, their hands are, are bound by, you know, policy, politics, you, know, you name it. For me, I joined a field. I had no idea, you know, if someone had said to me, you know, before I went in the military, they said, hey, you know, you're going to do satellite communications and that's what you're going to do for your career. I would have been like, I, n- no, <laughs> I, I don't know what that, that doesn't even sound interesting. But once I got into it, you know, and if you think about it, when you go through and you're looking at that book, unless you had, you came in with a guaranteed job, they sat you down with a book and they said, pick like your favorite I don't know, five jobs or something like that. Pick something that you want to do. Well, for me, when I was looking through that book, I was looking for the the bases that were going to get me away from Lackland as soon as possible. <laughs> and then I ended up, you know, at the time, the book I had said that um, Electronic Principles was located at Keesler. And I'm like, Keesler sounds fun. I like Mississippi. But it was not at Keesler at that point. They had moved that to Medina. So joke was on me. I was like, yeah, I'm getting out of San Antonio. And they're like, yeah, you're going across the street. You know, I don't think... Uh, well, I, I know for sure that that little book did not adequately prepare me for what was ahead. <laughs> and then when I actually got into school, I was like, well, I mean, I, I guess I'll be all right at this. They're, they're teaching me, which is cool, but um, I don't know what I was supposed to do with it. Then I showed up at my first duty station. I was uh, in a male predominant uh, work center, which I think is, it happens more often than not. And I think that's just statistically because of the number of females to males ratio in the military in general. So you learn really quickly to develop a thick skin to a lot of things, but at the same time, it was a it was a great assignment. Uh, a lot of the, the friendships that I made there are ones that I still have today. And, um, you know, that I think had it not been for a lot of those people, I, I might have checked out after four years. Yeah, I think the people are really an important part that makes up your military career if you decided to stay or if you decided to get out. I know that you are a mom. When did you become a mom? Well, interesting thing about that. I returned from Iraq and my first husband returned a few months later. And um, I would say, well, let's just, we'll just say that same year I became a mom. <laughs> so it was... Um, you know, a little unexpected, but you know now our uh, our daughter is experiencing the teen years, which are a joy in our house, as I'm sure you can imagine. <laughs> but she's you know she's in a, a really good environment, and you know despite the fact that her dad and I are divorced, we're usually on the same sheet of music um, and can communicate pretty effectively when it comes to um, handling a teenage girl. And uh, all, all that comes with that. <laughs> so yeah, it was. So we were dealing with the uh, the fallout of of Iraq and just kind of getting back into being a couple again and post deployment couple. And then you know, here's here's a baby. So <laughs> good times. <laughs> That's a lot to deal with and makes it for a challenging transition. 
you were, as a mom who served in the military, I don't get to talk to a lot of women get out of the military when they become moms. So was it, were there any hardships or challenges you faced being a mom and staying in the military? Oh, yes. So the, the, PCS that I told you about where he moved to the DC area and I moved shortly thereafter, about six months after, um, our daughter was about three months old when, when I moved. So I spent the first three months of her life with him being several hours away, driving home on the weekends. So it was a lot like being a single mom, especially during the week, because there was nobody else there. My parents were miles away. His parents were even further away. And, you know, he, he would come home when he could, which I get. So, um, but military being what it was, we were, you know, we were hours apart and you kind of, you go, well, all right. You just kind of knuckle down and go, all right, we're going to do this. We're going to figure this out. So, and I even considered leaving the service at that point because, you know, they, as you know, they offer um, to let you out of your contract for, you know, for things like that. And I, I really thought heavily about it. I went and picked the paperwork. I was ready to go. I'm like, I, I'm not doing this by myself. I didn't sign on for this. But then ultimately, you know, it was kind of a last minute thing. It was like, oh, here, uh, we were able to pull some orders. And I'm like, sweet, <laughs> I guess I get to stay. Cool. So then I moved uh, and then we were able to, you know, come back together with, with our daughter and actually, you know, have that. But, you know, even then there were still, you know, I deployed again after uh, we were both in the D.C. area. So he got to be full time Mr. Mom. And that was an eye opening experience for him as well. And then also being a world away from your child when they're very little was was pretty rough. And I know I'm not the only one. I remember when I went to Iraq, one of my friends, she was right at the like the six month mark. I believe it was. I don't I don't recall that. I think it may have been about six months before your deployment eligible. And she was like right it was practically the day that she became eligible was the day we were leaving for Iraq and I remember standing outside we were getting ready to to leave and everybody's saying goodbye to their parents and she's sitting there holding her little baby and I, I was just like oh my gosh like this can't be happening this is not right but it happens and uh, I know she's not the only one and I wasn't the only one and you know that I think that was probably the biggest challenge you know when you have a, a spouse that's military as well you kind of get in the mindset you're like look I'm doing my job you do your job we'll high five in the door way if we have to, you know, fine, we're, we're both serving in our own right. But when you have a little one, I think it, it changes the perspective a lot. Yeah, it has to be hard. The one of the first interviews I did on the podcast, it's episode three, I talked to Cynthia and she left when her daughter was just over a year old. And we talked about the challenges that she faced leaving her daughter behind. And the Air Force has changed the policy so that now it is a year. But she even got a lot of pushback. They tried to send her at 11 months and we're like, well, you you it's more than six. And she was like, but they changed the law so that I could stay home for the first year. And that was really important for her to fight up, fight that not only for her, but for all the people who had fought to make that happen. Well, I'm glad they changed it. I mean, it, it's still not, I mean, and people understand too. And, and even if you, once you have a child, you have to understand if you're going to stay on active duty or you're going to stay in a position where you could be deployed. I mean, it is a risk that you're you're accepting just like when you, you know, sign up to join the military, you're accepting the risk that they could send you somewhere where you may not come back. And so I don't mean to sound callous about it. It doesn't make it any easier, but it is one of those things where you go into it with your eyes open going, look, I know this, this is real. This could happen. And at the end of the day, you just kind of, you do your best to stay distracted as much as you can so that you can focus on your job and not the you know, not, not the fact that your child is half a world away, everything that goes with that. <laughs> yeah. She talked about all those things. Yeah. 
in the interview. So I feel like it's an important thing to talk about and mention because that was like one of the big driving factors for me to get out because my career field deployed a lot. And I knew that within six or well, within a year of having my son that I would likely deploy and I just I couldn't do it. So <laughs> It's tough. It's tough. And and I don't think there's any fault to be had either way. If you stay cool, if you go, hey, that's you made the choice that was you know best for your family and your situation. And I think that's either way, you know, either way, it's the right decision. I agree completely. Why did you decide to leave the military? So this was one of those. Uh, this this has uh, this is one of those situations that has a lot of answers or a lot of reasons. You know, first and foremost, you know, my family came first. By this point, whenever my husband and I decided to leave, we had you know at this point I had divorced my first husband. I was now married to my current husband, and uh, my current husband and I had recently had a child. She was let's see, she was about a year, almost a year and a half, I think, at the time when I when we both retired and having gone through deployments and stuff like that. It was one of those things, you know, I didn't want to risk us being stationed away from each other and neither did he. We didn't want to have to leave our children with someone else or run the risk of both of us becoming, you know, hurt, incapacitated, killed, what have you, and leaving our kids to grow up in places we didn't want them to be. They had come out with and, and, and by this point, I had changed jobs. I was no longer working in satellite communications. I was working in, in another career field that I was extremely unhappy with. And by this point, they had come out with the um, Terra option, which is the temporary early retirement authorization, which is where they were allowing folks between 15 and 19 years to retire early. And uh, luckily, my husband and I both fell into that category where we could retire early and kind of, you know, start the next chapter. And the military was kind enough to deposit us where we wanted to go. <laughs> and then we began phase two of, of the dream, I guess. Now, at this point, you know, when it came to what are we going to do, my husband had his career when he was on active duty and it was something he loved doing. And he really, you know, he, that's pretty much what he's known his entire adult life. And so it was a no brainer that he would continue doing that on the civilian side. And he immediately enrolled in school and began all the certifications and things that he needed to keep doing that job here in Florida. For me, it wasn't quite as cut and dry. I spent a lot of my time in the military working on education. Um, I left with two associate's degrees, a bachelor's degree, an undergrad certification, and a professional manager certification. So I had tons of certifications and degrees and pieces of paper that line a wall beautifully, but no idea what I was going to do with it. And we talked about it. My husband and I talked about it at length and said, well, what are we going to do? You know, and he said, well, whatever you feel like you want to do, well, you know, I'll work extra. I'll do what we need to do to support the family so that we can um, take care of everything that needs to be taken care of. And one day I got this harebrained idea that I was going to go to law school. I was like, well, that sounds fun. I knew I had the post 9-11 GI Bill and they were going to pay for most of, if not all of my law education. And I figured if, if the GI Bill was going to cover any school. I was going to go to one of the, get the best education that I could out of it. And to me, um, I often joke that I'm horrible at math, so I didn't want to go to medical school. So I went to law school instead, which is, you know, they tell you that they're like, oh, if you're bad at math, go to law school. No, no. 
there's a lot of math in that too. <laughs> so I went to law school and um, graduated and took the bar exam and ultimately became an attorney. And, you know, luckily having the retirement piece, you know, being a, collecting the retirement paycheck that we've been collecting since we've retired allowed us to to pursue this, you know, pretty much, I don't want to say on the government's dime, but I mean, it, it basically it set us up pretty well. And I don't think we would have had that um, had it not been for the early retirement. So yeah, that was, it was kind of a, a wing and a prayer. And we just said, well, we hope we both, we both get approved for this retirement. And we did, and we took the leap and you know, it's been smooth sailing for the most part ever since. So your transition seemed to go pretty well. You guys transitioned out from both being in to both getting out. And now you're a lawyer, which is really cool. Thank you. It's fun. It's it's a, um, a lot of people think bad things, awful things about lawyers. They think just the absolute worst. But there are good attorneys out there. There are ethical attorneys out there. And there are people that, that honestly care about the work that they do. And um, I, I do. There are a lot of jokes. You know, I, I get poked fun at quite a bit. You know, uh, I think I've heard just about every single lawyer joke there is out there. But, you know, I, I do find that I attract a lot of veterans, a lot of military and things like that in my work, because, you know, I, I understand where they're coming from. I've been through a lot of what they're going through and being able to help them because I have a skill that you know maybe they don't have or that they can benefit from. That's at the end of the day, that's what it's, that's how I know it's worth it. That's really cool that you can tie your new job in back to serving veterans and connecting with them, which I think is one of the key pieces that has helped me in my transition. So that's great that you're doing that. So my last question is, what would you tell young women considering joining the military? Go Air Force. No, No, um, I, I think it's one of those things. I get that the military is not for everybody. It's truly not. Some of um, some great folks have walked away from the military and I've helped people walk away from the military. When it comes to girls considering joining the military, I say, or I just ask, what do you have to lose? You know, it is, it's a great opportunity. It is, I've, I've enjoyed it. Like I said, a lot of my best friendships came from the military. I, not everything was all sunshine and rainbows and flowers, granted, but I think Overall, the the experience was was very good. I think that I wish I'd had more females to talk to before I joined the military because there, I had a I had a ton of questions. Most of them probably involved MEPS. <laughs> but beyond that, I, I think that um, you know they should talk to somebody about it. Talk to and not a professional or therapist or anything, but talk to other women that have served. Talk to different branches of service and find a you know find what will make you happy. And at the end of the day, if you don't like it, it's four years, usually (laughs) do, you know, just check it out. And, you know, it's better to live a lifetime of knowing what happened rather than always asking what if. Yeah. And that's part of why I created the podcast to give young women a place to hear stories. And if you listen to episode 34, I talked to Mariah about going through MEPS and her experience, which is a little abnormal because she, (laughs) but I remember going to MEPS and my recruiter was a MEPS and he didn't like tell me anything and then I was a little like oh okay this is what it is so yeah and that's what the podcast is for to help to help young women to have more women to talk to because a lot of people don't know people who are women in the military so hopefully our stories can help them hear about what our experiences are like and help them make their decision on if they should join or not cool Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really have enjoyed getting to talk to you and hear about your military experience. 
Thank you. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to this episode of Women of the Military. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of the amazing stories I have with women who have served in our military. Did you love the show? Don't forget to leave a review. Finally, if you are a woman who has served or is currently serving in the military, please email me at airmentomom at gmail.com so I can set you up to be on a future episode of Women of the Military. Women of the Military.